so much college football stuff to get to on the High Motor Podcast. Andrew Doughty here, Jason Churchill back again this week. And Jason, before we get to that, there's something that I can't get out of my head, mostly because I don't know how I feel about it. So I was listening to the radio the other day, and I think it was a fantasy football show. I was only listening to it for four or five minutes. And one of the hosts was talking about a fantasy football league that he's in. It's an Empire League. You ever heard of an Empire League before? I haven't. So I'd never heard of it either. And this blew my mind. I'm curious what your take is on this. Like to me, probably to you too, fantasy is just different versions of redraft leagues, right? Keeper dynasty league. So in an empire league, it's like a dynasty league that you keep almost your entire roster, whatever your, your league states, like 50% of your roster, 80% of your roster, whatever. But in this one, 50% of your league fee every year goes into an empire pot. So like if it's a $200 league fee, for those of you that are struggling with math today, $200 league fee, only $100 actually goes into that year's pot. So you're not actually playing for that much money. It's like a 12-team league. What is that, $1,200 in the pot for that year? Maybe the winner gets, I don't know, seven or 800 bucks for a $200 league. And then the other $100 goes into an empire pot. And this empire pot isn't paid out until somebody wins the league in back-to-back years. Isn't that oh. unbelievable? And once that happens, I guess this is more the interesting part. Once that happens, the league is just wiped clean. And it's either disbanded if people don't want back in, or it's restarted with a full redraft. So the guy that was talking about it, he was saying that I think his league fee was $200. Again, 12-man league. So that's $1,200 into the Empire Pot every single year. He said they're 15 years in. That's $18,000. How do you feel about that? Are are they taking new entries? Because I hate fantasy football. Dowdy, I do. And I'm far from ashamed to, to admit that. Fantasy football, for me, is ridiculously stupid. But I would play in that league. Do you do you not see the entertainment value in fantasy football, or you just don't gamble on anything? No, here's the thing. I, I don't need it. Like, I'm already interested in all that stuff anyway. I don't need fantasy football to care about the Detroit Lions, because I care enough about the Detroit Lions as it is. Wow. Like, so I, don't, I, don't need fan, I don't need fantasy football to care about the Detroit Lions, because I don't care about the Detroit Lions no matter what, you know what is I mean? going but, on in my but, life. But that's the way that people care about more games and more players, right? Like, if Detroit is playing Minnesota and both teams are 4-8, and eight, and it's like, you know, you need this win to get into the playoffs of your fantasy league, you care about that game and you care about how that game goes about. I already care enough about that game. I don't need to care more about that game. You care enough about a, a November? What would that be like? Yes, late, I care late enough. Late November? Uh, you know you do not. You I care, care about enough. a 4-8 Lions Vikings game in Hear November? Hear what I'm saying. Hear what I'm saying. I care already enough about it. That doesn't mean I care all that much, but I already care enough. I don't need to care more about that game. So that's what fantasy sports does. That's what fantasy football does. It makes me care about Matt Stafford if Matt Stafford's my quarterback. I don't want to care about that game. You see what I'm saying? I don't want to care about Fortnite. I don't give a rat's, you know what? I don't care. And I don't want to care. I don't have enough room in this brain and, and certainly not in this heart to care about the Detroit freaking Lions at all, really, let alone when they're 4-8 and, and Matt Stafford's about to miss the playoffs again. 
I don't care. I don't want to so care. So fantasy sports. How do you feel about this empire thing? Favorite. That's what I really want to ask. You just went completely off. I the love tangent. that. How That's what f- I'm saying. And that was my point. I would play in that league. I hate fantasy football. I, I I got out of our office league as soon as I possibly could, and I only played in it because if I didn't, we didn't have enough players. We didn't have enough teams. We didn't have enough owners. So as soon as I could get out of it, I did, and I'm out. And I'm not in those stupid conversations every Monday and Tuesday about should this trade get approved. I don't care. But I would play in that Empire League. Are you kidding me? That's a really, really fun idea. Eighteen thousand. I mean, that's when you win a fantasy league. That's great. Like I think when I've won, it's like a grand. That that's a good hunk of money. But like eighteen thousand dollars, depending on what your financial situation is, unless you're making six figures comfortably, that's a significant, not life altering payday, but like a year or five year altering payday. That's significant money. Yeah. Yeah. You can do. You can do a lot in Vegas with eighteen grand. You could do a lot in Reno, Nevada with eighteen grand, or Boise, Idaho with eighteen grand. I think that's the real question. You could do a lot more in those two places with eighteen grand than in Las Vegas. I'm not sure it would be as fun, but yeah, you're right. That is a great idea. I, I've never heard of that. That the Empire thing. That's that's the first time you've heard of that. I've never heard of that. Well, yeah, I, I think it had to have been a fantasy football show because for the five minutes they were talking about fantasy football, and I thought it was just me. And I've asked a few people in the last couple of days, and they haven't heard about it either. Yeah. So I thought whoever, I was in the dark. Whoever invented on this. that, whoever founded that idea, it's a brilliant idea, and you can even scale that down. It doesn't need to be a two hundred dollar in. It could be a fifty dollar in, and twenty five of it goes, you know, into this long term pot, and you have to or win whatever two years percentage you again. want. It could yeah. be just your standard one hundred and fifty dollar league or one hundred dollar league, which is what most people are in, and ten percent goes in because when you win the league in back to back years, I think that. At that point, you're doing something right. I mean, fantasy football with how many resources are out there, any idiot can win a league. It's not really about what you know that much. There are so many resources, podcasts, and rankings, and all this stuff from people who actually do the work, like at Number Fire, Yahoo, or whatever, to where any moron can go on and win a fantasy league. But if you're doing it back-to-back years in a, a dynasty type of league where you're keeping and actually strategizing players over 15 years, you're doing something right. You deserve $18,000. All right, Jason. Let's play you're wrong, but before we do, a quick message from my bookie. Guys, college football season is underway, and the NFL kicks off this week. And this entire season, I'm putting my money down at my bookie. It is the place to bet on football every single weekend, whether it is college football or the NFL, because it has better bonuses, it has better in-game betting, and it has more prop bets than any other sports book out there. And this year, this is the part that you want to listen to up because I'm going to give you free money up to a $1,000 deposit bonus. So you can double your first deposit up to $1,000 for that deposit bonus. All you got to do is go on MyBookie, use promo code MOTOR. Use some of that $1,000 then to enter the first online handicapping super contest. All you got to do with that super contest is pick five NFL games against the spread every single week, climb up that leaderboard, get close to the $100,000 grand prize. That is MyBookie, promo code MOTOR, bet, win, and get paid at my bookie this season. Okay, guys, if you missed last week's episode, your wrong is simple. One person reads out the statements they believe to be correct. The other person stops them when he is wrong. Jason, fired up. Let's do it. All right. Only one ACC team will finish in the top 25 of the college football playoff this year. Uh, moving on. Uh, number two. Are you surprised at that, that I'm, no, I have no objection to that? No, but I, I, I thought about making it the top – 15 of the top 20 because it doesn't take a whole lot to sneak into the top 25 if you're like number 23 or 24 or 25. So that's but, Syracuse that we're talking about, right? This just becomes yeah. a Syracuse conversation, right? It, it does. It does. I think that Syracuse loses to Clemson. They drop another game or two and they don't recover with a weak schedule. Fair. Absolutely fair because that's where I am too. All right. Uh, Georgia 
Um, actually, let's do let's. That's number three. N- number two, you'd bet heavily on Ohio State finishing the season as the highest ranked team from the Big Ten. I would wait. Let me let me. Let me so you you are saying that you would bet heavily on Ohio State to finish as the highest ranked team from the Big Ten. No debate on that. Uh, LSU quarterback Joe Burrow is better than Danny Etling. All right, we're moving on. This is good. This is uh, I should get some award here. Uh, voters might check the box next to Trevor Lawrence's name in November because it's easier to read and say than Tua Tagovailoa. <laughs> Did you <laughs> see where ESPN botched his uh, name? They called him. Uh, I don't have a pull up in front of me. Like they, so they they were interviewing him. And they had a graphic below, him and I think it said Tua Tagovailoa. So T A G O B A I L O A. Oh, jeez, yeah, terrible. And and nobody pronounces it right. I mean, so I, I would say ninety percent of the time I hear it on on radio or on television, they call him Tunga Tua Tunga Vailoa. That is not his name. Yeah, and I don't. I, I think that that could be like we talked about this last week. For those who listen to it, I Heisman voters, I have a huge problem with most of them. The people that submit their ballots early, and that's just the people who submit their submit their ballots early. I can't imagine how many of the nine hundred plus Heisman voters out there vote for whatever goddamn reason, having even watched a snap of football, don't even know who Tua is. So yeah, I, I wouldn't say you're wrong on that. All right, uh, here's a good one. Uh, Georgia will host Florida November second in a battle between two unbeatens. A little subhead to this. Georgia has Notre Dame on September 21st. Florida hosts Auburn October 5th and are at LSU October 12th ahead of that November 2nd matchup. God, that I think I, th- I think you're wrong on there. I think that Florida drops one. I don't see Florida winning both of those games. And I know that you had mentioned last week, and I agree with you. Florida did nothing to impress me in that Miami game. So I'm going to say you're wrong on that. I don't know which game they're going to drop. If it is, I thought Auburn looked way better against an Oregon team, and I want to talk about that. And we'll talk about the Pac-12 here in a little bit. But I think that that Auburn looked better in that game than Florida did. Uh, against a way worse Miami team. I think Oregon is so far above and beyond what Miami is, and I think that Auburn looked better against Oregon than Florida. So I, I would think that they would lose one of those two games. I don't know which one it is, so I'm going to say you're wrong on that one. Are you confident in that statement, or were you just trying to look for something that we can Enough. talk about? I think I'm I think I'm over 50% on that. Um, I, th- I think Florida beats Auburn because they're at home in that game on October 5th. The at LSU... Uh, I had some LSU stuff in here beyond the Joe Burrow question because uh, I think the way they went about their offensive attack, yes, it was Georgia Southern, but the way they went about their offensive attack over the weekend was really interesting with Burrow throwing the ball and throwing the ball down the field and LSU going with four and five wide receivers as often as they did. Um, If you haven't heard it by now, uh, the joke right now is that uh, the head coach of LSU is now spread Orgeron instead of Ed Orgeron ah. because because that's the first time that they've they've done this. He's been a classic kind of pound the football kind of guy, uh, and and, it, and it's worked to some level. Opening it up and maybe throwing the ball down the field a little bit more might give them a better chance to uh, you know beat Alabama. Uh, to maybe run the table. How much credit um, do you think? Remember when uh, when Brian Kelly after the disastrous Notre Dame season, what they went like four and eight. I think that was in twenty sixteen or seventeen. I'm completely blanking on what year that was. And he completely overhauled the staff. He basically said he wasn't going to be a dickhead anymore. He was actually going to listen to players. That's when he hired uh, Mike Elkaway from Wake Forest, and he changed his staff up so much that people gave him so much credit. And that's kind of the same thing as what's happened with Ed Orgeron. He's been the same type of coach, and that's what like Les Miles got knocked for. How much credit do – I feel like we we just gush over coaches that are willing to change. 
But shouldn't that be just the the minimum expectation for that? And now they just make what what we see as from ten thousand feet. Maybe it's not common sense actually in that locker room on the sidelines, but we see ten thousand feet a common sense change. Shouldn't we just be saying, yeah, why did they not make that change sooner? Why are we gloating over that? And I guess I'm kind of doing the same thing and maybe I'm wondering if I should be praising Brian Kelly for doing that and we should be praising Ed Orgeron for changing up when he's getting what are they getting paid three four five million dollars a year shouldn't they be just making these moves to get better yeah however they they have to win because if you're making you know again three to you know basically ten million dollars now at the top of this uh with the Nick Sabans of the world you have to do whatever you have to do to build a winning program that's good enough to warrant those dollars you know, whether you're Brian Kelly or you're Clay Helton at USC or you're Matt Campbell, it doesn't matter. So, yeah, and I, I would think it's 2019. This isn't a uh, this is just the way we do it kind of a thing. It's like, well, this is the way we do it, but it really hasn't been working or it hasn't been working enough. And, it, well, praise is probably the wrong word. I Let's use the word commend coaches these days for admitting that their style what they were doing wasn't working and so they move forward whether it was staff changes or philosophy changes or uh, you know the way they went about recruiting changed whatever it is you know they're gonna need to do it but they're doing it for survival they're doing it because they 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 have to um i the, the one thing i will say i hate it when coaches are stubborn in the, in this way if you are stubborn because you have a stupid team rule and it hurts a kid and you won't change it because that's just the way you do it it's stupid um but even when it comes to the way you coach your football team if it's not working you should change i mean we're seeing this all across sports i mean one of the things i do on a regular basis is uh, is cover baseball dowdy and one of the things that has made a huge difference in major league baseball is front offices are willing to change and if you don't have a front office and you know this as much as i do watching that twins team if you don't have a front office that's willing to do things a little bit differently and change and adopt and basically copycat if it's necessary, you will fall behind. And I don't know. I, I think football was the first to kind of introduce that. I think way back in you know the late 70s and early 80s when the, the Raiders and the Rams and the Steelers were running certain offenses and it started to get copied. And then Bill Walsh came in with this new West Coast offense thing. And everybody copied that. And it's just been a copycat league ever since. And that's how it works. But if you're not doing that, if you're not giving your team the best chance to win, then you're not doing your job. So I'm not giving Ed Orgeron extra credit or anything, but I do commend coaches that are just willing to go, okay, this is this is what I want to do, but it's not working. So let's do something different and let's have some ideas and do that. And then maybe continuously change and adapt and adjust. Uh, as they move forward. But I do think if that is the case, that makes LSU really, really interesting this year if they're going to try to open it up a little bit. Yeah, and maybe this is just a bigger conversation for another podcast, maybe an off-season podcast. But I remember when when Chip Kelly was hired. I'm not sure. Did you like that hire at UCLA? Where, like, what would you what would you have graded that going back in time? Do you remember if you liked it? Considering I, I did like it, considering where UCLA was at the time and really still is, um, I did like the hire. I think Chip Kelly can get them at least most of the way to where they want to go. Uh, and, and I'm assuming UCLA doesn't expect to be where Alabama is or anything like that. UCLA wants to be relevant every year. They want to win eight to 10 games every year. They want to get back to where they were, you know, really back in the eighties. They really haven't had a really good long run since the eighties when they were going to Rose bowls. And I imagine that's where they want. And I think Chip Kelly can get them there. I think Chip Kelly in a couple of years can get them to eight, nine, ten wins. I'm not sure he can take them much further than that. But even Chip Kelly has changed. If you've heard Chip Kelly talk about his UCLA team, things are different. 
He is he's not trying to build the or his Oregon Duck teams. That's not what's happening at UCLA. It is a different time, and he runs things differently. They're not going to try to rush the ball up to the line of scrimmage and get a playoff in seven seconds. So even Chip Kelly is adapting. But yeah, I, I liked that move. Um, you know, because considering where UCLA was at the time, they needed to get somebody in there to build some stability that had some upside. And I think that's exactly what Chip Kelly. It might be the only thing that he brings, but it's really important for programs like that to to bring in coaches to to change their programs around. I think he'll do that. I think you kind of nailed it because where I was going with that is that I didn't love the hire at the time. I don't know who else they could have hired that that would have made me more excited back a year and a half ago, but. I mean, it was it was widely ranked, and I know that we don't want to spend too much time responding to what other people made predictions. They're just predictions. I mean, you're grading a hire 24 hours after it's made, and we haven't actually seen anything happen. But Chip Kelly was widely uh, agreed upon to be one of the two or three best hires of that coaching cycle a uh, year and a half ago, and I wasn't there at all. I, I mean, I was so concerned with, and whatever stock you want to put into Chip Kelly's NFL, uh, failed experiments. You know, I, I don't think he was that bad in Philly. Obviously, all that that off the field and the bad headlines kind of caught up to him, in my opinion. That's ultimately what um, kind of pushed him over the edge. But, but anyways, I was worried that Chip Kelly, the, the game has changed so much. I mean, he was going back to a game that he hadn't been at in what five and a half years. I mean, when they when they went up to to Cincinnati, or excuse me, Cincinnati at home uh, last year, it had been five and a half, I think, years. I think 2012 was his last season in Oregon. And I was terrified because he he did so well at Oregon because he was so innovative. And I was worried that if he tried to keep doing that same thing five and a half years later and he didn't change it enough, he wasn't going to win at UCLA. And like you said, he, he's been willing to change. I don't know if he's been willing to change enough, but I think that the problem that I have there is the expectation and like you said, I, I agree with you. I don't think he's going to get – I don't even think he's going to get UCLA into where you mentioned. And I definitely don't think he's going to get UCLA to, to playoff contention. But I think there is a unrealistic perception that Chip Kelly is going to do at UCLA, the type of offense and the type of thing I did at Oregon, when the game has changed uh, so much. So, I mean, yeah, I, I commend Chip Kelly for, for changing it a little bit. Um, but I'm, I'm still not sure we should be – like you said, I'm still not sure we should be giving too much credit – uh, to these coaches, even though that's that's just kind of their job. All right, let's talk about what changed your mind after week one. So we're recording this before the Oklahoma-Houston game on Sunday night, and then obviously before the Notre Dame-Louisville game. So if Houston, for example, puts up 85 on the Sooners tonight, that might change my mind on Oklahoma's playoff chances just a tad. So for now, we're talking before Houston lays 85 or maybe 20. I think we both believe, and you mentioned this last week, you think the Oklahoma's defense will improve under Alex Grinch, I'm in that party as well. So maybe they'll put up 20 tonight because um, I think Oklahoma's D is going to be much improved. Oregon changed my mind, but not in a bad way. And I'm curious if I'm in the minority on this. I thought Oregon looked really damn good for most of that game. They had See, that I actually, game. I actually disagree. I disagree right off the top there because I watched that game in its entirety, and then I went back and watched a little bit of it because I'm a Pac-12 guy. And it, when you're out here in Seattle, the last thing Seattleites want to see is Oregon winning a game like that. I thought Auburn looked awful for two plus quarters. Agree, but I and think during that time, awful. I mean, you got to give Oregon credit for how they started that game. I mean, it's not like they didn't play well at times, but when you look at when you're trying to compare that team to the rest of the the teams in the top fifteen, I, I think they're at the bottom. I, I think Oregon. I don't because this is how I feel about the entire Pac-12. None of those teams are good enough to be in the top 10. None of those teams will actually be top 10 teams when the season is over. They will never actually play uh, like a top 10 team. Auburn, probably not either at this point. They got pushed around a little bit, and while I expected the Oregon offensive line to be fine and, and to be pretty good, 
Um, it, Auburn generally gets a push on a regular basis right from the get-go. First game of the season, the first thing they do is establish the run, establish the fact they can protect their quarterback, and they didn't do that early. I think Auburn is in trouble in the SEC this year. Um, one of the reasons why I think Florida will get by Auburn uh, at home. On so October you walked 5th away thinking that, that with thinking less of both teams from that game. I did. I absolutely did. I was not. I'm not impressed with Bo Nix at all. At all. Um, he, he's got a long way to go, and it was his first game. And I understand he's a freshman, and but but I didn't see anything in that game to come away. And we knew Oregon could do this. We knew that some of those teams at the top of the Pac-12 could do this against a team like that. Absolutely, I think what most people expected was Auburn to be a little bit better. They were awful the first maybe 35 minutes of that game. And that's where I think I'm giving Oregon more credit for. I mean, if Addison catches that wide open touch on the back of the end zone, they're probably going to cruise to a win over. Think I'm about not, how I, many mistakes Auburn made. I'm not. I'm not doubting that at all. And that kind of goes in the conversation of who really won that football game. Did Oregon actually lose the game? Did Auburn win it? Is a little bit of both. And I know that's kind of a stupid game to play, but I still walked away with how well Oregon. I think. I think that Auburn played poorly, but I think that Oregon played well in the first half and the first, what you said, 35 or 40 minutes. I want to give Oregon a little bit more credit for, I mean, I think Auburn's defensive line is, is got to be top five in the country, right? With how many seniors and how much, how much meat but they, they have up front. Like it. But they didn't play like it. But that, they have played that, like it in the past. And I'm going to use the past. seven was a disaster the first half of the game. All the holes, all the gaps, no discipline on their assignment. It was ridiculous. I was sitting next to, um, I watched the game live and then when I came home, um, I was hanging out with uh, with a buddy of mine who used to coach football. And the one thing he kept pointing out was how aggressive the middle of the Auburn defensive line was. And they were aggressive in trying to push upfield. Oregon, it seemed like, knew exactly what they were doing the ent- entire time. So they were trying to counter that, and it worked every single time. It, it was like Auburn had a, here, we're going to do this. It, it almost falls into what we were just talking about with coaches making changes, saying, hey, this isn't working, let's change it. And Auburn didn't change until like midway through the third quarter. Um, it, yeah, that that Auburn defensive line, I think, isn't quite as talented as maybe we thought they were going to be. They're certainly not quite as good, at least at this point, uh, as most expect them to be at some point this season. We know how with colleges, there's lots of turnover, things change, sometimes their staff changes. Um, and three, four games into the season, they could look entirely different than they did to open the year. Maybe that's the case for Auburn. They were awful on, on Saturday. Awful. So, so for Oregon, the big picture, I know a lot of the reaction was, what does this do for the Pac-12's playoff chance? I think that everybody, even the most optimistic West Coast folks, thought you could go into the season saying the Pac-12 needs to do a lot. They need Oregon needs to go down to, to Dallas and beat Auburn. That didn't happen. Um, I, mean, you I think Oregon that- needed to do that. Oregon needed to do that because Auburn was on their schedule, just like Washington needed to do that when. But it they still went has an impact on the Pac-12's playoff chances. It, it does, but if you're telling, but if you're telling me that if Utah or Washington run the table, they're not getting into the college football playoff. That's a completely different conversation. So I don't think the Pac-12 needed that win. I think the, I think it was a piece of the puzzle. Absolutely. If there's a one-loss team, if there's a one-loss team that wants to get in, that game could come into play. But if Washington or Utah or anybody else out there that's undefeated, Washington State, I guess we can include them, Stanford, runs the table, they're getting in probably, right? Or it's or it's a completely different conversation. Well, absolutely, but you're still shrinking the number of teams that can do that because in the past, and, and we've seen this not just in the past, yeah, but, but Oregon, across other Oregon could have started this season against Cal and lost, and we'd be saying the same thing. So it's not necessarily that Auburn lost, uh, Oregon lost to Auburn. It's that Oregon lost. 
So now we're shrinking the the, the group. Do you see what I'm saying? The, this this whole narrative that the Pac-12 needs to improve their you know like the, their their public perception to improve their chances to get in is so damned overrated because one game for one is not going to do that. They would need to like run the table outside the conference this year. And 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 one of the, and the two of the three teams that started the year with the best chance to do that still have a chance to do that. And they don't have any of the Auburns on their schedule this year. But I still think there's such a good opportunity for, for all those three teams to beat up on each other. I mean, that that's what ultimately ends playoff sure chances. Is, sure there is, but again, that doesn't change if Oregon beats Auburn. Well, sure there's it does, still, because you have, you have a bigger, you have a bigger be- margin for error then. No, you have one team. The, 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 what I'm saying is the, the the Auburn factor here, the fact that it was a good non-con, it was the SEC, it was a good non-conference game for Oregon, is irrelevant because Oregon could have lost to Hawaii or BYU in week one, and we have the exact same conversation we're having right now. So you think Oregon's now done? There are really just, Oregon now there are really been. just two teams. I do think Oregon is done. Yeah, because I think the Pac-12, the Pac-12 is on thin ice, and one season of non-con games, whether they win a bunch of them or lose a bunch of them, isn't making the difference. This whole idea that if Oregon goes to Auburn, uh, and I understand it wasn't at Auburn, but Oregon goes down to AT&T and they beat Auburn, it changes the perception of the Pac-12 is ridiculous because it doesn't. It's one game. Because what what happens when what happens when USC and Notre Dame hook up and Notre Dame throttles them or you know and Notre Dame throttles Stanford? Then we're still having the same Pac-12 doesn't win big games thing. One game is not changing that, not for Oregon and not for anybody else. Now, the simple win loss does. Because you know, name a Pac-12 team that lost this weekend: UCLA. They're obviously out. Not that we expect them to be there, but they're out. But they don't matter. They're out. The Pac-12 has to run the table. But it doesn't matter if you say they lose. It doesn't matter. I I think I'm even higher on Cal than most teams, but it doesn't matter if Cal would have lost to UC Davis this weekend. That doesn't matter. Oregon losing matters. Only because you're 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 saying that Cal wouldn't have a chance to go to the playoff in the first place. Yeah, I don't but I think Cal, I think that Cal is a Cal, good team. If Cal ran the table, you'd well, change yes, your mind. Of course, yeah, we can play that game and I, I mean, That's what I'm talking about. I think UCLA so, sucks, but if they were of course if, if UCLA ran that ran the table, they would have been in the playoff. Right. And if Oregon would have ran the table, they would have been in the playoff. If UW runs the table, they're in the playoff. If Utah runs the table, they're in the playoff. And if they're not, we're having a totally different conversation about, oh, my God, this year was incredibly ridiculous and there was a bunch of undefeated teams, right? So I think that we're in agreement on that we don't want to put everything into this. I It drives me absolutely crazy when people will say, in the current format, let's say we have the four-team playoff for the next 10 or 15 years, and people will say a two-loss team will never make it. How do you know that? I mean, why do you want to put that in that back? We have no clue. I mean, two lost teams have been fairly close over the first, what, five years. So how can you sit here and say that two lost team will never make it? You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to happen in March Madness. That's why people watch the game. So I don't I don't think we can sit here. I I agree with you in, in that it, it shrinks the, the number of teams that from the Pac-12 that can go to the playoff. I think that Oregon is probably down, but I can't sit here and say with, with absolute certainty that they are. I mean, if you're not that high on Auburn, I mean— Think it, about what it would take. Think about what it would take. Okay, um— it, it would just take the Oregon. right wins. It would take teams not we, – we, we said this with the Big 12 back a few years ago. We had all of those teams that were fringe playoff teams, and what they started doing is just beating up on each other. It would take two losses from Alabama, Clemson, Georgia. It would take – I mean, think about the teams that we think are going to be there in the end. Georgia, Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, Oklahoma. Right, I mean, we'll just stop. Well, right so there what if Georgia loses to Florida and then they lose? A the SEC couple of championship those teams game. would need to lose twice. Right, so you're losing a regular season game, then you're losing an SEC championship game. So let's let's but, put Clemson. But you need in. more than one of those teams. Right, to right. Do that. So let's so let's just say Clemson's in, right? And let's say one of the Big Ten teams loses in the regular season, and then the champion is in. 
So let's put the Big Ten champion in. And okay, the big who's the, wait a second. You can't skip over that. Who's the Big Ten champion, and how do they get out of that with just one loss if it's not Ohio State? I, I don't think it. I don't think it matters what team it is. I'm just saying, if you were to put Clemson in, let's I think just, it does matter what team it is. I, I guess I'm, my my point is that I'm saying the the top seeds. Let's just pretend that Clemson is the first seed. And let's pretend that Alabama is the two seed because they either went undefeated in the regular season or they had one loss. Whatever they got the two seed. So that means two of the next group of teams that we're going to talk about at least have to lose twice because a one loss Oregon team is not going to get in over a one loss Ohio state team or a one loss Oklahoma team those or, or a one loss Georgia team. Those teams have to lose twice. And that is extremely possible. You could have a two loss team in the big 12 championship game and have that team win the big 12 championship. That is extremely possible. How many times has that happened? We're only five years in. How many times that happened where two of those scenarios have happened? Well, we're always and then and and then we're eliminating the idea that Oregon is the only team that can step up into that spot. Oregon, Oregon, Oregon started the year so far on the outside of this picture, and so did everybody in the Pac-12 that they needed to run the table. So you think that the the perception at the rankings, and we talked about this last week, you are buying into because Oregon started what were they ranked eleven or whatever in the AP point. I don't know if that's exactly what you're referencing. You think because, it's because of, the, of pers- the perception of Oregon right. in the Pac-12 in one game, even if they win that Auburn game, isn't changing that perception. Okay, so I get it. So you're halfway there. You agree that the perception is working against Oregon, but this is just one piece of the puzzle. Yes, and there are one game and even that. one season of games. Right. You could tell me this year that the Pac-12 that. Stanford and USC both beat Notre Dame. That Oregon beat Auburn. I I don't know what all of the the, the top non-con games in the Pac-12 are. That's still not changing the Pac-12 perception. Yeah, that's fair. It's one season of games. It's not like they went in and beat Alabama. Now, if you're telling me that Utah goes in and they go, they run the table and they go in and they beat Alabama in the semifinal and they beat Clemson in the final, that changes things. But the, whoever's on their non-con schedule beating BYU on the road, big deal. Beating If Oregon beats Auburn, that doesn't change the perception at all. Well, it's going to take Teams a long way like, to okay. get there, too. We saw what Washington did. They go to the playoff and they get smothered. Like, let's say Utah does run the table this year and gets to the playoff, and they mm-hmm. get smashed again. If anything, that's going to hurt their perception even more. Right. Still can't compete with the, the big The bar guys. is exactly. just well, – we're going to move on here because we've kind of beat this dead, but the bar is just – so damn high for the Pac-12 right now. I mean, for the Big Ten, it's basically just score a point in the playoff, and then everybody will like you. For the Pac-12, I mean, like you said, you have to get. We talked about this kind of last week with with who's going to challenge Alabama. Is it going to be A&M from within the division? But doing so requires such a big leap. And for the Pac-12, not only did they get into the damn playoff, you have to probably compete in the playoff. Because you're going to get one of the, you're not going to be a one or a two seed. So you're going to get you Alabama. Win a game in the, you're going to get if, Alabama if you could or Clemson. Win a game in the playoff that would start. Even would make a start, it a right? thirty-one to twenty game. I think that would be the start. Honestly, I don't know if you need to win that game. I think that would be kind of the one of the building blocks. I think we're. I think that the perception of the Pac-12 is only going to change when they expand the playoff. I don't think Pac-12 is close enough to. Uh, turning up the, uh, you know, kind of the the PR machine in, in a positive manner on that conference in the next five years. I think we're going to see an eight or a twelve team playoff before that actually happens for the Pac-12. The, the teams at the top can still run the table, maybe in some years lose a game and get in like UW did a couple of years ago, but most years that's not going to be possible. 
and, and I think we're just too far off. Larry Scott's driven this conference, you know, into the ground, and I think uh, USC not being good right now with with Clay Helton. We talked about this a little last week. Um, you know, it holds them back and holds them down. And I think it's real and I think it's legitimate. And I think the committee, when, the, when they voted in Washington a couple of years ago, um, th- I think they probably did the right thing. Uh, and I don't think the committee is going to be swayed by, you know, public perception and, and conversations that are happening on social media and things like that. But it, those performances in non-conference games by the teams that they're considering. Like if Oregon is at the end of the year, they're 11 or 12 and one, they're going to think back to that Auburn performance. Certainly. Absolutely. One other thing that changed my mind, curious your take on this is Willie Taggart. I think he might actually have to go and I get that the cost is big. Um, I wrote about this on HeroSports.com and I tweeted it. So after just for simplicity's sake, his contract actually runs for the end of January, so kind of depending on when he was fired, the prorated amount. But generally, for simplicity's sake, let's say he was fired on January 31st, so after this season, he'd be owed $17 million. Even after next year, he'd be owed $13 million, 12.75. And I get that Florida State had issues, you know, the final days of Jimbo, some of the, the insiders of college football have shown that, and that Taggart actually didn't inherit a great situation there. And that's kind of been my defense of Taggart over the last year. I don't love what he's doing down there. But reading those those firsthand accounts of actually what was going on in that program, that's my been that's been my defensive tagger, and it almost becomes for me: Can Florida State afford not to fire him? I mean, I don't know if you watched that game, but like Doak Campbell Stadium was absolutely depressing on Saturday. I mean, it was like a it was like a funeral, empty seats everywhere. It was quiet as hell. I mean, we're talking about one of the you're a little bit older than me, so you could talk about this better. I mean, we're talking about one of the the best, most intimidating atmospheres in college football. I mean, you probably grew up with Doe Campbell being the atmosphere in college football, right? Certainly one of them. I think Miami Top was huge. Top five or whatever. I mean, it, absolutely. Miami was huge. They were perennial contenders for the national championship. Uh, Bobby Bowden had them roll, and there were Heisman Trophy winners. Things, yeah, right. Things it was what like Clemson is today. It's what I mean. A and M has yes. has struggled to go over the hump, but it's what Kyle Field is today. And I get that. Like I said, seventeen million dollars if they were to fire him after this year. I get that it's a lot, and it's not only that, but I also tweeted this at a Dowdy eighty eight. Jason is at Prospect Insider. Um, you know, if they were to fire him, it's not just seventeen million dollar buyout. It's a thirty million dollar bill. They, they they still pay Taggart's Oregon buyout. I think that was three million. They also paid Oregon's part of the South Florida buyout. That was like one point three nine. We'll call it one point four. And then his five million dollars salary from each of the the first two seasons of the contracts. So you're paying him thirty million dollars. And I don't know. I'd like to see the financials of money lost, like in ticket sales. I mean, because the the scene at Doak Campbell was almost depressing. The ticket sales, the lost merchandising, uh, the lost fundraising, all that stuff, and. I think coaches deserve more than two seasons. I'm in that three-season group kind of minimum unless some sort of egregious conduct has occurred. But at this point, I, I wonder, is it even worth it to keep him on? Where are you at with Willie Taggart? Uh, here, uh, with Willie Taggart specifically, that's really difficult for me to say because I don't know what the details were of what he was going through last year when he first took over. I don't know what the hurdles exactly were. They weren't exactly in a good position, we know that. See, you want to give him those two years – I'm shy of three years because I think if the athletic director knows what he what he or she is doing, which isn't always the case, um, if you know that that's not your guy, you have to get rid of him. You can't keep him no because matter of the dollars. cost. So you're you're in the and group no matter that, the cost. So I mean, we'll, we'll we'll stick to Willie Taggart here. So Gus Malzahn is buyout. I don't know what the exact number is, but it's somewhere around thirty million dollars. If Auburn doesn't think that's their guy, which obviously they did, or they wouldn't have given that uh, provision in this contract. You say cut bait no matter what it is. 
Yes, because I think when you have bad football teams, athletic programs as a whole suffer. Florida State's football program, you know, funds every other athletic program in that at that school. That that's the way college athletics work. You're telling me that Florida State uh, basketball team is making them so much money that if the football team is really bad and they really struggle to generate revenue, that they're going to be just fine or at least in a, as good a position as if the football team was good. That's obviously not true. I think it's too important for the football team to be good and to be in a good situation, to be in good health, so they can generate revenue. That's what this is all about. And the athletic director is not doing he or she, you know his or her job. If they just let it roll, it's something we saw. We see this a lot. We see coaches given that extra year or two because of the dollars. But how much? How much money are you actually losing your school? You, you tell me. Uh, uh, Taggart's salary is five million a year or thereabouts. Yeah, it's five million. Um, Six year, thirty million dollar deal you signed two years ago. Okay, so let's say the five million dollars a year. What do you think that that football program generates in revenue every year? I don't know. We could probably look it up. It yeah, means. it it it's millions and millions and millions and millions. So, um, firing Taggart and owing him whatever the buyout would be, um, would you say it was seventeen million dollars? Um, probably ends up helping them in the end if they make the right hire, if they replace Taggart with the right person. I mean, that's what it's all about. You have to make the right hire, and when you know you didn't. How much I mean, of it becomes I, I, you're scared to to take that risk? Because if you fire Taggart, like I said, thirty you're gonna pay thirty million dollars, not him specifically, Oregon a little bit of that, and USF a little bit of that, but twenty five ish million dollars. Are you just scared to take the next leap there? Because how much money is left to get a, a big fish? Because you you damn well better not miss on that one. If I'm the president of the school, I'm concerned about the athletic director's ability to make the right decision, so I'm probably getting heavily involved. But I can't tell him no. I can't say no. You can't pay an extra seventeen million to improve our situation. I can't do that. I mean, this is too big of a deal. So who do they it's target? Too large of who a do deal. they target? I mean, I know someone like Kirby Smart will get mentioned because he's he spent time there, like in the early two thousands under under Bowden. But this is a way worse way worse job. There we go in a, a way worse situation, and no doubt that Georgia can match anything. So I don't think that there's any shot at all. So who is it? We talked about Dino Babers a lot last year or last week, you know, is it, or is it kind of like the Kyle Whittingham conversation, the Matt Campbell conversation? Can you sit here right now and say that somebody attainable is better than Taggart? Who's attainable for Florida state? Well, Right now it seems like anybody decent would be better than Taggart. What has Taggart done? What has Taggart actually done over the course of a number of years, not just one or two seasons to warrant, confidence what has he done what did he do at Oregon what did he do at South what did he do um to suggest to you that he can handle Florida State a national contender and you want Florida State to be in the top 10 you want that what has he ever done to suggest to you he deserves to just play this out well I assume they're looking at his history I'm not going to speak for them but I'm just guessing they're looking at his history of turning around Western Kentucky um, and South Florida, yeah, he wasn't there for that long, but I'm guessing that. And you'd agree, there's... completely different animal. Turning around one of those schools is completely different. And you're different trying to get Florida State, Florida State to, to, a, to a top 10. At Western Kentucky, you're trying to get to 8, 9, 10 wins at South Florida. I think what he did at South Florida was, was probably the mistake. And that was probably the mistake in the hire at the first place, in, in the first place. It was, it, it was probably a mistake for Oregon to go get him, too. I, I've never understood the um, that hiring process. I'm going to go, okay. This is what the guy did. This is his, you know, resume, and this is what looks good on the resume. And then you talk to him. Can you kind of give yourself a scattering report and match that up with your school and, and your program's needs? 
those are the athletic directors that are successful in this country. Or is it more of you're sitting in a room and say, hey, guys, we can go up to Eugene. We can grab their head coach. Yeah, we can do it. That's going to work. I mean, is it just we're going to grab Oregon's head coach? All right, I'm on board. I don't know. I, I would love to have known what that conversation was like. I hope it's not that shallow, Andrew. I, I hope. Well, that's what they did that at friggin' Bowling are... Green when they hired Mike Jinks. They literally, the AD, it was documented that he went on Google and typed in who had the most total yards or most total points for, from a year ago and hired the, the Texas Tech assistant. <laughs> I mean, that, that that just completely blew up in their face. So, I mean, I don't – I would hope that Florida State didn't do something that stupid. But if there's that stupid of an AD at, at Bowling Green, I don't know if there are other stupid ADs out there. What, what, what's the AD situation? Is it still the interim guy? Is it uh, Coburn? Is, is he no, still they hired the, the – uh, oh, give me one second here. Yeah, David Coburn. Okay, so he was the interim guy, and then they made him the full-time guy. Yeah, that was, okay. that was okay. quite a while. That was – Four okay. or five months that ago. Was, that yeah. must have just been this spring, I, I think, that they, that they uh, made that official at least. May, yeah. Yeah. Um, so maybe he's just not the right guy. Um, and, and maybe we're, we're second-guessing you know, him already. But I, I'd give him a second, you know, a second coach hire to, to, to get to the point where uh, – I don't know. That's, good, that's a good question. I'm glad that's not my job. But, it, you know, it, and it's easy for us to sit here and say that Taggart shouldn't have been the hire in the first place. But – but most people widely applauded that hire. That's 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 the. I would say I would like to actually go back when we're done here and look at the, the coaching grades of of people that I actually trust in the industry. I'm curious what was the grade on that hire because I remember it being pretty favorable for him. Mm-hmm. I think it was kind of like in that. Uh, Chip I'd be Kelly interested ballpark. in reading the. I'd be interested in reading the whys of that. Why did they believe that? Not not did they believe in that because in general people either hate something or they really like it. They're really hardly ever kind of sort of in the middle or just barely over one side of the fence. So I'd like to hear the whys of that. What made people think that Willie Taggart, who really only has a history of taking you know programs and turning them around or taking smaller programs and making them bigger, never had any level of success at a large program getting them back to where that but program has? historically who's has been. who's on that type of list, though? What do you mean? As you somebody who's had guy. success. If you're Florida freaking state, you go get a guy that's done that at another school. We're, we're talking it, we're, we're talking about uh, it, places like USC and Notre Dame just steal a coach from another Power 5 school That's that where, where they're doing that. Well, what did, what did Florida do? And I'm not saying it was the perfect hour, but what did Florida do? Where did they get their most recent head coach? Another Power 5 where he was having success. Right. And and so they're going to raise the profile on his school a little bit, but not from a South Florida or a Western Kentucky, from an SEC school to another SEC school with a higher profile and see if he just raises the floor and raises the ceiling at the same time. So it's time. almost like Willie Taggart was in a position to do it. This is actually kind of perfect. So if because he went to Oregon to get Oregon back to I mean, Oregon was not in that bad of shape under health. They weren't great under him, but it wasn't that bad uh, under Helfrich. So maybe it was like Willie Taggart was going to Oregon to do the same thing. And if you had waited, so you're saying if, if Taggart had done that and given Taggart three years to get him back to 10, 11, 12 wins, compete for He'd the have playoff. Some, he would, you're right. Then he that's when you go. different on his resume. That's when you go steal him say, away. And okay. honestly, they probably, from how he talks about the state of Florida and how he talks about Florida State, I know everyone calls it their dream job. With him, it kind of seems sincere that he did want to come back to Florida and he didn't really want to leave the state in the first place, but he couldn't pass up Oregon. So if Oregon had – he had done that at Oregon for three seasons, gotten the Ducks to you know 11-1 at Pac-12 championship, that's when you go take him. That's what you're yeah. saying. Yeah. I think so because so they I'm, big on hiring on the, I'm big on hiring on the resume, but the resume has to match your program. 
it absolutely has to match where your program is and what the upside act, you know, we'll go to, we'll go to Clay Helton. What gave USC the idea that Clay Helton was going to get them back to where it it was an easy hire. They didn't have any foresight on that at all. Exactly. Exactly. They were hoping to, to run into, to, you know, to, to a lottery ticket basically, you know, and, and I'm not saying Taggart was the same thing, but I'm just wondering why, whoever was involved in the decision, whether it was one person in Coburn, whether it was a group of people, I, I don't know what the process was. What was it that convinced him he was the guy? And then for the pundits out there that are talking about, yeah, this was a really good hire, I'm wondering the why. I, I need to go look that up because I'm wondering what made the, what convinced them that Taggart was the guy. It appears that he's not at this point. I'm certainly willing to go all the way through this season before I make a decision, but why at the end of two seasons – if Florida State struggles this year and they're five and six or whatever, why after two seasons should he get a third? Why? I, I need to see progress. I need to see significant culture change at that school in year two. And if I don't see it, he's got to be gone. Before we look ahead to, to week two here, I guess this is week two. If they lose at home to Louisiana Monroe this weekend, is he gone on Monday? Wow. Uh, Seriously, think who's about on that. The, who, Maybe, because I'm a firm believer in when you are convinced the guy that's running the show right now should not be running the show, you make the change. You don't. I mean, wait, that's no matter what. Like I said, it's prorated, so we still have what four months to go of his contract. It's not a seventeen million dollar buyout. It's probably closer to nineteen twenty, and then you're already paying his two salaries. You're you're invested twenty five, twenty six million dollars into him, and he's out after fourteen games. Maybe. I don't know the answer to yeah, that. Maybe. I mean, Louisiana, Louisiana Monroe. I mean, man. I mean, would you keep him around just because you think you're going to save money? Because I imagine if you're firing a guy after two games in a season, somebody on staff is just taking over. And you're probably giving that guy a little bit of a raise, but you're not giving him $5 million a year necessarily, right? So the extra money that it's going to cost you right now in terms of the coach's salary is not going to change dramatically. It's basically like you're, you know, you're paying Taggart to not coach the team and somebody else is doing that job. Yeah, Charlie right? Weiss is really I mean, good at that, too. Right. <laughs> so looking at, looking ahead to week two, uh, week two, obviously a ton of things that could change your mind that we're just not expecting. Um, you know, like I said, if Houston puts up 90 in Oklahoma tonight, that might change things a little bit differently. But looking ahead to week two, the notable ones, LSU, Texas, uh, A&M, Clemson, Cincinnati, Ohio State, I'm looking forward to that one. Then one's uh, out west in the Pac-12. We talked about that conference a lot. Stanford at USC, Cal Washington, one to, to keep an eye on. What is something within reason that you think could happen in week two, either those games or others, that could change your mind on something? What does Texas A&M do at Clemson? What would change your mind? What would change my mind? Texas, both. Like what if Texas? I mean, that game's at Memorial Stadium. If Texas A&M goes in there and wins, Texas A&M all of a sudden has to be in the college football playoff conversation, like heavily in that conversation. Yeah, you think that's and within Clemson, reason? You think A&M going to Death Valley and winning is within uh, reason? Within reason, yes. Do I think they're going to win that game? No. And do I think Clemson could end up winning that game by you know three scores? Yes. Okay. How about a three point Clemson Texas, win? Does that change your mind on on A&M? A little bit. Yeah. Does that put them in the playoff conversation. Maybe not the playoff conversation because that road ahead is rough. It's it's rough. But it tells me they could go into Alabama and give them problems. And and they, they could go into games against the, the best teams in the SEC and give them problems and maybe squeak out a win. It only takes one uh, Texas A&M upset win to make things really interesting you know, in the SEC. And not that it would necessarily knock out an Alabama to lose to Texas A&M. We've seen Alabama 
lose in the regular season before it doesn't happen a whole lot and still win the SEC title game and still go on to win the national title. But that Texas A&M team kind of reminds me of that freshman or sophomore that shows up most games, but occasionally they don't. So they're not considered one of the elite players, but on occasion they'll almost single-handedly win a game for you against a really good team. The Texas pro, the Texas A&M program reminds me of that kind of a player right now. I think they could beat Clemson. If they played 10 times, they might only win once or twice, but I think that's the kind of upside they bring to the table. Yeah, I think A&M's kind of been that sleeping giant. Again, we talked about them last week, and maybe going to Clemson, and even if they don't win that game, keeping it close, and I know that some teams have done that. Syracuse to that, uh, NC State, you know, Pittsburgh, they've all played Clemson tough, and, and they didn't really build on their program that much. Syracuse kind of has. Um, but you know maybe that's one of those steps to getting toward actually competing with Alabama and challenging, uh, being an annual challenger for the for the SEC West. I'm really curious about that Cincinnati Ohio State game. I think if Cincinnati gets get beat pretty soundly in Columbus, the line is at 17 right now. So if Ohio State wins that game by let's say 20 to 25, which I think you'll agree with me is within reason. I'm going to start to wonder quite a bit how good Cincinnati really is. I love the Bearcats right now. Um, I think they were number 19 in my preseason rankings, their highest-ranked group of five team. And, you know, if they go in there and just lay an egg, or even if if it's like a 37-7 to type of game, I'm going to really wonder how, how good they are. And then also one other thing in that week, two before we wrap up this episode of the High Motor Podcast, the Pac-12 going back there. Oregon, they're hosting a suddenly interesting Nevada team. I mean, maybe... They don't look great with the hangover. I'm not saying they win, or excuse me, not saying they lose that game. Or maybe if Cal upsets Washington, USC somehow pulls something out of their ass against Stanford, my kind of let's wait and see on the Pac-12 might change. Those things seem within reason. Oregon winning an ugly game against Nevada, Cal potentially beating Washington, USC beating Stanford. I wouldn't bet on any of those things that happen like we've been saying over the last few minutes here, but they're within reason. Where would that put the Pac-12 for you? Would that change things at all? Or are you, you still going to have the same approach going into week three if one or two of three of those things happen? Well, if they end up, are you talking about if they end up the weekend without a without a team that looks like they could go undefeated? Because that's the only thing that changed my mind about the Pac-12's playoff chances. So one of those three teams, Oregon, Utah, Washington, had to run the table, and one of them now can't. Other than that, nothing else is going to change my mind. So if Cal upsets Washington, you, you, you're not buying the Golden Bears at all? You're just saying well, no. they're going to lose. They're going to lose no. a couple of games. No, but it but it would knock out Washington in my mind. Absolutely would knock out Washington. All right, yep. Jason. Before yep. we call it here on the High Motor Podcast, give me give me one bold prediction for college football week two. Bold, predi- bold. prediction. Bold. Bold. Not prediction. bold. I, I don't care about say, bowl man, games. Bold. I don't even watch most of the bowl games. I don't want a bowl prediction. You're sitting say, early September. Yeah, who's going to be in the quick lane bowl? Colorado to the Clorox Bowl. Um, <laughs> One bold prediction. Well, I'll stick right there with Colorado, actually. How about Colorado beats Nebraska at home? Number That's, another, what are they, ranked 24? Nebraska's ranked 24th. Colorado showed they could score some points uh, this past week. They are at home. Uh, I'm a little iffy on Nebraska. I don't really know what to expect. My gut says they're a tad bit overrated, and the expectations are a little bit too high. So how about Colorado uh, takes out Nebraska at home? I do like that. Maybe South Alabama is just better this season, but – Nebraska looked really iffy, got the punt return for touchdown. But other than that, they looked sloppy. Adrian Martinez kind of did what he's been doing the first, what, 12, 13 games of his career where he has a phenomenal throw uh, and then comes out and does something that makes you uh, scratch your head. So I, I like that 
a lot. All right, the High Motor Podcast will be back next week. That'll be Monday, September 9th. I'm working on a really, really strong guest for that one. Hopefully, I can close the deal on that. In the meantime, check out past episodes and all episodes of the High Motor Podcast on Apple Podcasts, uh, Spreaker, Overcast, Stitcher, anywhere you do your podcasting. Check out the show on Twitter at High Motor Pod. That is Jason Churchill. I'm Andrew Dowdy. Thank you for dropping by the High Motor Podcast this week. I saw a friend today. It had been a while. And we forgot each other's names But it didn't matter Cause deep inside The feeling still remained the same We talked of knowing one before you met And how you feel more than you see And other worlds that lie in spaces in between